seven and a half years ago, July 2nd, 1998, we held our first Bible study here in Rockford. I drove up, my wife and my two children were living in DeKalb at the time, and we traveled here to gather for the first time with people from the Rockford area. People from Rockford who had just begun recently to attend the church in DeKalb at Kishwaukee Bible Church. And we had a flock Bible study. You know, we have flocks here of home Bible studies. This is how the church started. Just a small Bible study that we had. And we had our family and there were four other families. And so I look across the way here, there are some families who were there before. The Iversons were there. The Belongers were there. The Sosnowskis were there. We were there. It's a small little gathering. As we started this Bible study, we had a, a desire. We were praying that God would raise up a local church in Rockford. These families have been traveling down for a couple months to Kishwaukee Bible Church, and we had responded by starting a Bible study up here. So even just think about that, imagine that. You know, in the, in the next year, suppose we have four families come from Beloit to Rock Valley Bible Church. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to have a Bible study in Beloit and see God raise up a church there? That's how it started. That's how all of this started at Rock Valley Bible Church. And you're the answers to our prayers. You know that? You're the answers to our prayers. If we would have... I think about you three families were there. If we would have thought this time ago what God would have done... We'd have been shocked, I think. We'd have been really encouraged. And even with that, that sense, we do pray together now for God to continue to do things. And I hope that we can gather seven years from now and just say, wow, we all gathering at 845 on Sunday mornings, really praying for what's going to take place in this church. Then we might be blown away. Think about what God has for us. On that first Thursday evening when we met, I thought about what Scripture we could use that would really help focus our attention and, and chart the course for Rock Valley Bible Church in years to come. I mean, what, what is the text? If we're going we're to shed everything on the peripheral, what's the core text that we want to look at in order to chart Rock Valley Bible Church that we ought to be? And the passage that we studied was Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Because this passage really helps focus our attention upon really what's important. And so if you haven't opened there yet, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Rather than just jumping into it, this time we come to the conclusion of our exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. Looking at these famous verses, and they're so famous that they have a name. They're called the Great Commission. I chose this text that day because Jesus is here having lived his life, having spent three years with his disciples, giving them their final orders before they would go out to make an impact in the world. You could liken it to a, an athletic coach giving his team much training and preparation. This is his final pep talk before they go out in the field. Or a, a conductor of an orchestra finally having trained his, his orchestra to say, okay, here are the things we just need to remember to do this. Re- remember that song. Keep the beat slow. Remember this. You know, just the the few key things he wants to remember. And that's what Jesus has done. When all is said and done, this is what you need to focus on. And the the instructions given to the disciples in that day are still pertinent to us today. I've entitled my message this morning, Final Marching Orders. Matthew 28, 16-20 says this, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus told His disciples first to march to Galilee. 
to set this whole thing up. In verse 16, we see the disciples on the move. The events of the last quarter of the book of Matthew from chapters 21 through 28 have all centered on Jerusalem. Everything took place there. In Matthew chapter 21, He entered into Jerusalem. In chapter 22 and 23, he, he faced the religious leaders who were opposing His ministry, asking Him some questions, trying to trap Him. Ultimately, ending up in their condemnation the woes of chapter 23. In chapter 24 and 25, we see Jesus on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, telling His disciples of what's going to take place in the years to come. In chapters 26 through 28, Jesus was betrayed, arrested, put to death by the religious leaders just outside the city gates. And so all this took place for seven chapters, eight chapters, all around Jerusalem. But now, a change of scenery takes place. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the focus turns northward, about 70 miles north, to be precise, up in the region of Galilee. In chapter 26, verse 32, you can look back there, Jesus had anticipated this change of scenery. He told His disciples, after I've been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. So they had some premonition, some prior teaching that's going to happen. And another time, in chapter 28, verse 7, the angel told the women, go quickly and tell His disciples being risen from the dead. Behold, He's going before you into Galilee. And yet, another time in verse 10, Don't be afraid. Go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. For there they shall see me. And having communicated this three times, the eleven disciples, as it says in verse 16, proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Apparently there was some type of mountain. Jesus had said, hey, when we meet, we're going to meet here once I rise from the dead. I would suspect that this gathering place was a, a common meeting place that these disciples had with Jesus. I think it would be a little bit, you know, like the uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember when G- Judas was going to betray Jesus? He knew right where he was going to be because Jesus often went there with his disciples to teach them. And I think likewise up north in Galilee, there was a common meeting place where they always gathered. I would believe away on this mountain, away from the crowds. If you remember, Jesus did all of his ministry in northwestern Galilee. Northwest of the Sea of Galilee, in three towns particularly, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They're all like this little triangle on the northwest side of the sea. And, and even just from there, it's just another five miles or so, there's this big mountain, Mount Arbel is what it's called, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of more remote. And I'm guessing that someplace up there is probably where Jesus met with His disciples. So they knew where He was going to be. And they met there. They traveled these 70 miles, took them a couple of days, and verse 17 records how they responded when they first saw Him in the flesh. This is great. They said that when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Their reaction was just like the women at the tomb. You remember back in verse 9. They said, Jesus came and greeted them, and they came up, took hold of His feet, and worshipped Him. To take hold of His feet, they had to bow low and prostrate themselves. Perhaps kissing his feet, perhaps grabbing his feet. They were bowing low to worship Jesus, and Jesus accepted their worship. There's no indication either in verse 9 or here in verse 17 that Jesus refused their worship. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter came to Caesarea, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. And do you remember what Peter said? He said, Stand up! I too am just a man. See, Peter clearly understood the difference between a divine being and a human being. A divine being is to be worshipped, but a human being is not. And he stopped Cornelius from being worshipped, but Jesus didn't stop the women or these disciples from worshipping Him. Jesus understood well the difference between divine and human, and He accepted the worship being divine Himself. Same thing took place in the book of Revelation. On two different occasions, the Apostle John fell at the feet of the angel to worship him. And the angel knows the difference between the divine and the angelic. And the angel said, don't worship me. I am a fellow servant of yours. Worship Christ. And Jesus knew full well the difference between divine being and angelic being. 
And he received worship because he knew he was divine. This is a testimony of Jesus' claim to be God in receiving this. And I think that these disciples responded this way for the first time because I think for the first time they really began to see Jesus clearly for who He was. He was the Lord God of the universe. Well, they had reasons to believe so before. I mean, they'd seen the lame walk and the blind see and the wind calm. They, they saw Jesus feed multitudes with only a few fish and a few small loaves. And they saw other miracles. They saw demons cast out. They saw seas calm. But this one was unlike any other miracle that they had seen. Jesus, having been brutally murdered, was brought back now to life. He was standing before them, alive and well. They knew that death no longer could contain Him. And as they understood that, that they knew that Jesus was worthy of their worship and He's worthy of our worship as well. But even in their worship, it's very interesting here in verse 17 that says, some of them weren't quite sure. It says, some doubted. Some were doubtful. Now, why they were doubtful, I'm not quite sure. It may have been because right, they weren't entirely convinced the one standing before them was Jesus. Maybe they said, well, it looks like Jesus, but I'm not sure. We know on the road to Emmaus that He could disguise Himself. So maybe they're thinking, I don't know. Maybe they, they thought they were seeing a vision. Maybe they're saying, boy, I really am tired. And just knew that they could be you know, disillusioned. Maybe that's so. But I think, though, that the reason why they doubt is because they had a difficult time really grasping what has taken place. They had a difficulty thinking through the implications of everything that this means about Jesus raised from the dead standing before them and they were blown away. Kind of doubting. Kind of, is this true? Is it real? You know, a few weeks ago, I told you the story about the time when I surprised my parents by driving cross-country from California to arrive and just walked in the back door and said, Hello, how are you doing? I have another story to report to you today. It happened this week. My wife's sister was due to have a baby this past week. And um, in the past few weeks, Yvonne's sister, Janelle, has been calling her lots of times, lots of questions about baby things. This is her first baby and calling her, you know, asking, well, what, even questions like, what kind of blankets do I need to bring home, you know, to the hospital so I can bring her home, baby home in? And, you know, questions about feeding and questions about preparing the room and questions about all these kind of things. And Yvonne was on the phone a lot past month just trying to prepare her. And Yvonne said, you know what, it'd be really nice to surprise her coming out. I'd love, and Yvonne told me many times, I told you the sermon a couple weeks ago. Yvonne said, I'd love to show up at the hospital and just say, hi, Janelle. Well, we found out that she was going to be induced labor on Monday morning. So, Yvonne left on a plane to California Monday afternoon. And while she's in the plane, on the air, our family, we said, we're not going to answer the phone lest Aunt Janelle say that she has a baby. And uh, I talked to her on the phone and said, well, let me try to get Yvonne and I can't get her on the phone. Well, Yvonne landed in California and uh, she called me just right at the airport, said, Steve, any news? And I said, no, nope, no news yet. So things are going good. And um, then she got in the car and started driving home from the airport. And I'm telling you, not 10 minutes later, I get a call from Aunt Janelle that they had a little baby boy. I said, oh, Aunt Janelle, that's really nice. Boy, you know, Avant's not home yet, is what I said. And I said, well, maybe, uh, let me try to get her on her cell phone and have her give you a call. And so I called Yvonne on the way home from the airport. And uh, yeah, she tells yeah, Janelle, yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm out right now. Oh, I wish I could see your baby. That would be so nice. I just wish I could be there. And she hung up. And uh, within an hour or two of having uh, this baby born, Yvonne shows up in the hospital room. And to say the least, Yvonne's sister was shocked. She was in a state of just absolute unbelief. I mean, she was there and... Um, just didn't know. In fact, it was really good that my mother-in-law got the whole thing on video. So, Yvonne, so if you're over at our house, you know, those of you who come to Flocks at our house tonight, you can request to see the video. She sent it, you know, across the internet. It's wonderful. We got this, this uh, minute-long video of her and, and um, my mother-in-law's back there and saying, Janelle, we got someone else is here to see you. And she's in the bed and, and her face just goes, And so it's a minute-long video. I transcribed what she said. Okay? 
Think about what Janelle said. She said this. Uh, what are you doing here? Oh my gosh. She says, I don't think, by the way, that's a good thing to say. Okay? I think that's swearing. It's just using a substitute word. But she said that, and I'm going to say it. She said, oh my gosh. What are you doing here? Wow. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. Oh my goodness. It's like, it's like, wait. Wow. Thank you. I was glad she said this. How nice of Steve to let you go. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How long are you here for? At that point, the video stopped after a minute. And uh, I don't know how many other wows she said, but she said at least five there in the first minute. And I, I tell you that story because there was a period of time where she was just in utter disbelief. Because in her mind, here, her sister was in Illinois and she just talked to her in Illinois and here she is. And how can that be? It didn't compute. She showed up. And I believe this was the doubt that the disciples had when they first saw Jesus risen from the dead. They last, the last they'd seen of Him was when the Romans had taken Him away and crucified Him on the cross. And here He was standing before them in perfect health. And I think some of the disciples were saying, Wow! Wow! How can this be? And I think that they were in doubt in that way. Hey, think about this. I thought about this week. Why did Matthew include these words? That they were doubtful. It's some, some apprehension in, in their mind, some, some hesitating. Why did he include this phrase for us? I mean, here's the climax of the book. This is where everything's headed. And if anything, Matthew wanted to convince his readers of the reality of the resurrection. Why did he include this about these people doubting? Like, can this be? Is this, is this really the case? Do I really see you, Jesus? I think it's here to encourage us. Here were people who were looking upon the risen Christ and yet still doubts in their minds, still trying to come and grasp the reality of what was taking place. And one of the things that impacted me mostly, I'm not sure if it impacted you, if my message last week, of just the, the logic behind the resurrection and the proofs that we have, the only logical explanation that we have to explain the facts is that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean... If our hearts weren't sinful, that would be absolutely easy to believe. And after years of trying to come up with some type of excuse or some type of reasonable explanation for the data, there's been no other satisfactory explanation. It is this. Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, you know what? It's difficult to believe that. It's difficult to believe someone rises from the dead, especially someone who's been beaten so cruelly. In fact, do you know how difficult it is to believe that? It's impossible to believe that. Jesus said that with men, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's why I closed last week with the illustration from Luke chapter 16 about if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead and tells them. See, because God grants the faith to believe what is written about Him. And so, church family, as you struggle with the doubts of really convincing yourself that Jesus rose from the dead, be comforted. The disciples had doubts as well. But don't rest in your doubts. None of these apostles rested in their doubts. And when some of these disciples were doubting, I don't think that it was doubts of unbelief. I don't think it was, you know, the cynical, ah, he didn't really, that's not really him. I think it was doubts of amazement and awe and and can it be, Is is it really true? Can I believe it? It's the, wow, wow, wow. That's the doubt that they had. Really just trying to believe. Regarding the resurrection, such ought to be our doubts. Doubts of amazement, seeking to believe, being in awe of the greatness of the news of the resurrection of Christ. Trying to fully grasp it. And yet, perhaps, associating and feeling with those disciples that we can't quite get our arms fully around understanding everything that took place. Well, these disciples marched to Galilee. When they arrived there, Jesus gave them orders to march to the world. 
His instructions are threefold. First, He speaks of His authority in verse 18. And then 19, the first half of 20, our actions as a result of that authority. And finally, His assurance in verse 20b. His authority, our actions, and His assurance. Let's look at His authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Think about the authority that Jesus had when He walked upon the earth. He had a lot of authority. He had authority over disease. Cleansing lepers, healing paralytics, casting away fevers. He had authority over nature. Calming the storm with a word. Being able to walk on water. He had authority over the demonic realm. Casting a legion of demons out of the Gerasene demoniacs. He had authority over sin. He could forgive sin unless He did the sin of the paralytic. But it was through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God the Father gave Him all authority. Look at there. It's been given all authority to Me. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proved Jesus to be the anointed Son of God. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It was the resurrection that gave Jesus authority to be the final judge of the world. Acts 17, verse 31. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that lifted Him up to seat Him at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. Psalm 110, verse 1. But when you look upon our little rebellious planet, suspended in space, it doesn't look much like Jesus has all authority. You read the newspaper and you hear of murders, crimes, hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes. It doesn't look like He's got all authority. But you know what? He has all authority. He sits on the throne of heaven. For the time being, though, He's waiting. There will be a day when His enemies are subjected under His feet. And though Jesus has all authority now, He doesn't exert all of His authority. He has it, but He's not fully exerting it right now. But there will be a day when the kingdoms are given to Him, when the world will see Jesus in all His splendor and authority and majesty, and they will fully realize the power and dominion of the Messiah. Listen to Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 to 14, which speaks of that day when Jesus is fully realized in all of his realm of all of his authority. Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and men of every tribe and language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Someday, Jesus Christ will rule over all of the universe in full glory and majesty for all the world to see. Right now, He's waiting. Though He has all this authority, this is the glorious Lord that we serve. And because we serve this glorious Lord, We have a responsibility. We have some actions. Verse 19 begins with a therefore. In light of all of Jesus' authority, we have a task to do. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. In light of our glorious Lord in heaven, we have a responsibility of our task to make disciples here on earth. In fact, that is the main verb here of the sentence. It, here, it's right here. It's make disciples. You might say it as the Greek does. Mafetiote. Or discipleize people. That's what this is talking about. Train them. Teach them. Learn them. Is what it means. Now, when we hear the word disciple, we often associate it with who? Who, kids? The disciple. Who do we hear? Who do we think about? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? Like the disciples, the apostles. We think of the twelve disciples. But when the Bible uses the word disciple, most often it uses to describe a Christian. Like, like for instance, when the ministry of Jesus began, we're told in John chapter 4, verse 1, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Followers of Christ. The blind man who received his sight was called a disciple. 
Joseph of Arimathea was called a disciple of Christ. Tabitha was called a disciple. So it's, it's bigger than just the twelve disciples. There are more than that. In the book of Acts, when describing the church, the word disciple is often used to describe Christ followers. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we read of the disciples increasing in number. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we read of the number of the disciples continuing to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Disciples, believers, Christians, Christ followers. When Saul sought to persecute the Christians, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The term Christian first began to use, begun to be used in Antioch. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Some five to ten years after Christ was raised from the dead. That first period of history, Bible history, has followers of Christ being called disciples. And I say that to make this point. When Jesus says make disciples, He's simply telling His own disciples to multiply themselves. Seek others who will follow after Christ. They were followers of Christ. They were to encourage others to follow Christ. And we likewise need to see people come to the faith. We need to see people continue in the faith. So I say this question, what's Rock Valley Bible Church all about? Making disciples. That's, you, you distill Rock Valley Bible Church down to one thing, and there it is. Making disciples. When we conducted that first Bible study here in Rockford, one of the things I told those in attendance that you know, any church that God raised up needs to be a body of disciples to do the work of making disciples. Right? That's, if, if you say, what's the vision of Rock Valley Bible Church? This We want to be and to do. We want to be a body of disciples who do the work of making disciples. That's the main verb. That's our main task. That's our main calling. Right? To make Christians... Encourage people to follow Christ. Continue on. Jesus tells us how to do this. He gives three participles. Going, baptizing, and teaching. I know that first one just says go. In many of your translations, really it says going. It is a command as much as baptizing is a command, teaching is a command. But the main verb is to make disciples. I do this by going, baptizing, and teaching. Real simple. Three-step process. You've got, you've got to go and find them. You've got to baptize them, which means to convert them. And they need to teach them and train them in the ways of righteousness. Let's, let's look at each of this. Let's think about go. You think about when Jesus initially called His disciples. His first disciples. Do you remember where they were? Remember where they were? They're fishermen. And they're casting their nets into the sea. And Jesus said, You come follow Me. I want you to stop fishing for fish. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. It's the very first thing he told his disciples. Then he was training them and teaching them all manner of things. And then he pressed them on very at the end of his gospel. And he says, now I want you to go and be fishers of men. Go and, and get out. You've been with me three years now. I've been teaching you how to fish for men. Go out and do it. Go out and make disciples. And praise the Lord, they did that. They were obedient to the call of Christ. Do you know that Rock Valley Bible Church exists today in part because the disciples went out from Jerusalem to spread the message of the good news of the Gospel of Christ. They went out and then someone else 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 went out and someone else went out and finally, ultimately, we have here in Rockford Many churches, because the first disciples were obedient to this call. The gospel of Jesus Christ traveled halfway around the world. But you need to realize this, though. So I was thinking about this. The disciples didn't go out instantly. It's not like they took off from Galilee to Asia and Spain. They returned from Galilee back to Jerusalem. And they focused their attention upon that city. They spent their time making disciples in Jerusalem preaching in the temple, and thousands are being saved. Preaching in the synagogues, preaching in the houses. Acts 5.42 explains it well. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They just, it means they just kept on going wherever they are, whether it's in the temple or it's house to house. They kept preaching, kept saying, kept proclaiming the gospel message, Jesus as the Christ. They were a body of disciples doing the work of making disciples. And only once they were doing the work in Jerusalem then did they go out. Did you have any idea how long they remained in Jerusalem? 
You read Acts and it seems like they went back to Jerusalem, the church exploded and boom, they went out. You know how long they were there in Jerusalem? How long? Yeah, like three years. Maybe three and a half years. They were in Jerusalem cultivating the church and dealing with the difficulties of church growth. But with the stoning of Stephen, they are forced out of the city because it was no longer safe to be a disciple of Christ and to live in Jerusalem. That's events what we call the diaspora. Like the dispersion, the scattering took place. God basically said, okay, you've done your thing in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to, boom, I'm going to scatter you. Force them out. But you know who left when the church was scattered? Do you know who left? It might surprise you a little bit. The disciples left. The apostles stayed behind. It's interesting. When we went out and scattered, the, the disciples left. We read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, On that day a great persecution arose over the church in Jerusalem because they killed Stephen and they were going to hunt down all other Christians, all other disciples of Christ. And it says, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The church was scattered to safe regions in which to live. And you know what? That brought the gospel to other nations in, in Israel. See, because when people were scattered... They began living in different communities. They began picking up different jobs. And they were so impacted by what they had experienced in Jerusalem that their mouth couldn't stop talking about everything. And as a result of their testimony, believers were coming to faith. And churches were forming. But much of the spreading of news wasn't the apostles. Much of it was these scattered people initially going out and talking to people. In Jerusalem and Judea, this was like family members. This is like moving back to your family of origin and you know, finding some kind of place to live and just beginning to talk. It was the people that spread the word about Christ initially while the apostles stayed back. That's not to say the apostles never left Jerusalem. Eventually, they did. They did. And according to tradition, many of them died a martyr's death in the foreign land. But when it was too dangerous to live in Jerusalem, they sent everyone out and the apostles were right there in the persecuted church, helping the church right there. But once the church was established and strengthened again in Jerusalem, the apostles went out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Peter went to Samaria where many had come to faith through Philip's ministry and I think through many other disciples moving up to Samaria. He had an instant church. I mean, that's the way to start a church. We started one with four families, five families. I always tell guys, thinking about starting a church, other churches or you know, through my seminary connections, I always say, take as many people as you can from the mother church. And I pledge, if we reach a day where we can send off a group of people to plant a church, I am going to pledge and encourage everybody to go. Go like they did in Jerusalem. Pick up and leave. Because the battle from four families to ten families is an immense battle. The battle from twenty families to thirty families has been a lot easier. So those first ones are hard. So send thirty and start right away. In fact, I heard about that. Um, I recently had a... Uh, Opportunity to meet together with some former seminary, not former, some uh, master seminary graduates. And one was telling me a story. He lives in Peoria and they started a church with about 40 families. It was great. You know, totally, totally consistent with the church. The pastor of, of the church was saying, go, go, move. Move to that side of town. Move and go help them. And that's what took place here. But the apostles did go out. Peter went to Samaria. Peter spread the gospel to the Gentiles in Caesarea. Recorded in Acts chapter 10. In the first few verses of Acts chapter 13, we, we read how the church had spread to Antioch. And from there, they sent out Paul and Barnabas then. This was a little bit different. This was Paul and Barnabas now taking the gospel message out. Just these two missionaries to places that had never heard of it, the gospel before. We went out to Pamphylia, modern day Turkey. Later, Paul continued to Macedonia and Achaia, which is modern day Greece. And likewise, the other apostles went out well. And tradition says Andrew went to Achaia where he was martyred. And Thomas went to India, where he was martyred. Bartholomew went to Phrygia, Hierapolis, and Armenia, ultimately being martyred in India as well. Matthew, the writer of our Gospel, went to Egypt and was martyred with a spear. Now, the reason they went out was because of the words of Jesus. It says, make disciples of all the nations. Now, I want you to grasp of 
how difficult that would have been for this early church, talking about all the nations. I mean, until this point, you read through the whole of the Old Testament. The point is focused on Israel. Salvation primarily is, is concerned with Israel. God is working there. Jesus Christ has come as Messiah to Israel. And certainly there's some overflow salvation to the nations and there's some, some allusions to that. And Psalm 67 speaks about that. Genesis 12.3 speaks about that. Genesis 3.15 speaks about that. But predominantly, you said God is going to be faithful to His people Israel and focus on Israel. At this point now, things changed out to the nations. And it was a hard thing for the Jews to grasp. Even if you read through the book of Acts, it's very interesting. Is it even in the passage that Gordy read today? Preaching to the Jews. The Jews were all excited in the city of Antioch. And then do you know what happened? Once they came back the next Sabbath... So many crowds were there and Gentiles and the whole town was there and the Jews said, it's just about us. And they became jealous and turned against the apostles because salvation was coming to the Jews. Similar thing happened in Thessalonica as well. It was the Jews who were stirred against it because the gospel was going out. This is a huge thing for them to bring salvation to all the nations. But the story of the church is that it did. It went from the church spreading from Jerusalem to Judea in the south to Samaria in the north and then the remotest parts of the earth, just as Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says. And see, here's the thing, is that Christianity is missionary in spirit. Those who have come to faith in Christ have a message that they want to get out to the world. But that message needs to get out to the world. It needs to start at home. And that's what the disciples did. They focused their attention at home. Because much of the work was being done there. And as the Lord spread then the message, the people responded. We get to our second second word, not only go, but baptize. The act of baptizing. Before they went out to the nations, while they were in Jerusalem, the apostles were busy baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You read the book of Acts and you read countless numbers of people coming to faith and then being baptized in the day of Pentecost. Peter preached about the resurrection of Christ. And many people there were pierced to the heart saying, what shall we do? Their eyes were open for the first time that they crucified the Lord of glory. And Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who believed were baptized. 3,000 people. When Philip was in Samaria preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus, the people were believing and then being baptized. When Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch, he came to faith and wanted to be baptized. Philip baptized right there along the side of the road. When the Lord Jesus met Saul upon the road of Damascus, he was blinded. And then a man named Ananias came to Saul and laid his hands on him and gave Saul his sight. The first thing that Saul did after he received his sight, he went and was baptized. When Peter went to Caesarea to preach the good news of Christ, the people believed and were baptized. Who can refuse baptism who have received the Holy Spirit? And time and time and time again, you see, when people believed, they were baptized. When Paul traveled to Corinth, Acts chapter 18, verse 8, it says, Many were believing and being baptized. And I say all this simply to say this. I think that what happened in the early church when Jesus told them to go and be baptized, He was telling people to convert people. Telling them to see people come to faith in Christ. Exhort people to turn from idols to serve a living and true God. And as a sign of their conversion, they immerse them in water. So I ask you, have you done this? Have you followed in obedience to the Lord through the waters of baptism? If you've been converted to Christ, He tells you to be baptized. Maybe there's some unbaptized people here. Come and talk to me. And we can help that. Well, these are the marching orders Jesus gave to His disciples. Go speak with people, see them converted, and baptize them. And don't just leave them alone, right? You don't just baptize them and say, oh, have a good Christian life. No, you spend time teaching them, right? Going, baptizing, and teaching. Jesus said, teach them to observe all that I command you. And this, by the way, consumes a major effort of the church to continue to cultivate and to teach and to train the people of the church. It's no wonder the apostles would often go and spend long periods of time in one place. When there were converts, they needed to be taught and trained in the grace of God through Christ. And in Antioch, we're told they spent a long time with the disciples. 
Right? There's the church spending a long time with the disciples, teaching them. When Paul initially arrived in Corinth, he settled there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. When Paul was in Ephesus, he was there for three years. When Paul couldn't get to cities where he had been before, he wrote them letters to teach them, to encourage them. That is what is crucial to the Christian life, teaching and learning. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? Be a learner. Be a disciple. Right? Learn. That's what it means to be a disciple. Be teaching people. Be a student. Be a follower. I want you to notice though how applicational Jesus' words are here in verse 20. He didn't say, teach them everything that I commanded you. He said, teach them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. So when the disciples were to go out there and teach others to obey, it's not an exercise of the mind. It's an exercise of obedience is what Jesus said to get at here. Don't just change their mind. Change their heart. Change their behavior through changing their minds and through changing their hearts. Paul wrote that his apostleship that he received was for this purpose, to bring about the obedience of faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. And that's what we need to be as a church, a Rock Valley Bible Church. We need to be a church that goes and baptizes and teaches. So at this point in my message, I wish I could tell you the hundred converts that we've had at Rock Valley Bible Church. Hundreds of people have come to Christ. We've baptized them. We're teaching them. You know what? That's not the case. Sadly, our church has not grown through new converts. It hasn't. For the most part, we've grown from people who either moved into the area, maybe been disappointed from a previous church. It's a fact of, of life. There have been a few new believers among us, and for that, I'm grateful. There have also been a few others begun to attend who haven't been attending church for a long time, and you know, they said, well, I just need to get back to church. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful as well. But we have um, observed here that church has grown mostly through um, just other people coming. Just Christians coming. And what we have seen happen here, though, by the way, is no different than many churches across the land. And America is a little bit different. We are a church-saturated society. When the apostles were going out, they were going out of places where Christ wasn't ever named before. And we need to have a heart for those places, as Paul did. He spoke in Romans chapter 15 about a heart to go and preach the gospel that's never been preached before. We've got to have a heart for that. But around Rockford, the gospel's been preached much here. And most of the churches across America that are experiencing phenomenal growth are because people coming from other churches looking for something maybe refreshing or something different. And some certainly are fulfilling a need where many churches today are just pandering and playing light and loose with the truth. We've not done that at Rock Valley Bible Church. And I think the testimony of many of you is that you've come because you want to learn from the whole counsel of God. And I believe that we're doing well at teaching the whole counsel of God. I believe we're doing well at encouraging people to follow Christ with your whole heart. And in fact, I believe that those who come to Rock Valley Bible Church and visit, if they're not interested in being real with Christ... I don't think they last very long. Now, some, some go away for other reasons, but there are some that come and say, I can't handle the, that that's your teaching. That's not, I want something exciting and most... I want my ears tickled. We're not tickling ears here. And so I think that we have grown precisely because we have not tickled ears. As I look about... Among you. You know, I'm really encouraged with the depth of your love to Jesus. Rock Valley Bible Church isn't a church filled with shallow, superficial followers of Christ. And that is to your commendation, and I commend you in that. We have families sold out to Christ, we have people sold out to Christ. And in that, I, I rejoice, and in this, we're doing well. Then I guess this is, why haven't we seen many baptisms? Why haven't we seen many conversions? Well, maybe it's because we haven't gone. Now, I'm not talking about going to Nepal, which we're committed to. In fact, Gordon and I made a commitment in recent days. We said, every service that we have, we are going to pray for the church in Nepal. In fact, we want to have put it so much so that the day we don't pray or mention what God is doing in Nepal, we want you to say, something was wrong with that service. 
Why, why didn't we think about Nepal? I mean, Nepal is a place we're talking about 1% of the whole community is professing Christian. Great opportunities there to preach the gospel where it has never been preached before. And we've talked about up even in the mountains. If people have never heard of the name of Jesus, we support this church, we can get there, right? We need to have a heart for that. And I'm not talking about going, when I say we haven't going, that we've not gone to Nepal, because many of you, quite frankly, won't have an opportunity to go there. I'm talking about each of you going out of your own house to speak with others. I'm talking about going to your neighbor. I'm talking about going to community events specifically with a purpose that you just might have a chance to meet somebody and speak with them that ultimately it would end with sharing the Gospel with them. Do you realize that Rockford is a location that others might look to and say, oh, we need to go to Rockford. Do you realize that? That when we think about going, we, we think about, oh, it's not Rockford. We need to go to other places. Well, other people are looking, oh, we can go to Rockford. Like, even if I put a vision for you, you said, oh, you know, we think about Beloit or, or Freeport. There are people in Beloit just like us saying, oh, we need to go to Rockford. But we're here in Rockford. We are missionaries to Rockford. Self-supporting missionaries. You are in the nation's that was only a dream in the minds of some people years ago. As those in England thought about, you know, converting the Indians and coming to America and just in prayer, we are the nations to which Jesus has said. And so going, I'm not talking about going someplace, I'm talking about going where you are. Do your neighbors even know that you are a Christian? I know it's hard, especially when your neighbor, and I see this happen often, right? The neighbor drives up, clicks on the garage door opener, and the garage door opens, he drives in, and the garage door closes, and you like, you don't see your neighbor. Have you guys experienced that problem? None of you guys do? How about this, though? But when they drive up, are you waving to them? At least like making some kind of effort to be with them? When they're out raking their leaves, do you ever say, oh! There's my neighbor. i got to get out and talk to him. Do you ever do that? That's what it means for you to go. To go to your unsaved neighbor and talk to them. I've been challenged by the example of one of our neighbors. We are down the street a couple of doors, has some dear Christian friends, and this guy makes a huge effort to speak with our neighbors. It's not unusual for me to drive by his house in the neighborhood or you know, a couple of houses down to see him talking with some some neighbor in an effort to reach out to them and love them and share the gospel with him. He's always talking with people. In fact, so much. So, I remember moving to the neighborhood and uh, speaking with some people and you know, they asked what I do and I said, I'm a pastor of a church and they said, oh, there's another pastor, down the, a reverend or just down the street here. And I never could figure out who that was until, you know, about a year and a half later. I was like, oh, he's the guy. And you know what? He's not a pastor. He's like every single one of you guys. He just has a heart to go and he's going and he's talking with people. It's been a great challenge for me. And so I say to you, what sort of efforts are you making to speak with others of the gospel of Christ? When was the last time that you sought to get out of your house and attend something where unsaved people would be there, where you can meet them, where you can seek to have an influence in life? Are there even unsaved people in your life? Men, you have a great advantage of this work. Ladies, if you work, you've got some advantage. If you're at home, it's more difficult. You've got to work harder at it. Have you tried to create evangelistic opportunities for yourself? I mean, I've tried to do some things over the years, some with success, some without success, and I share some of these for you, not to say that you need to do what I'm doing, but you know, you've got different influences that I, I have. You have different giftedness, you're different interested, different avenues, and I would encourage you to do things like this. I coach soccer, play on a soccer team, and the goal is sharing the gospel with fellow teammates or parents. And opportunities have come. I've spoken with fellow teammates about the gospel of Christ. Uh, even this past year, as a family of, a, of a, one of my kids on our soccer team, it's going to a difficult time with their children. I helped counsel them a bit, explained them the gospel, gave them a Christian book, and he was very encouraged with that book. This past Halloween... I tried to be a bit more aggressive meeting people. I, I rolled my charcoal grill out to the edge of the street, put a fire on it, had some uh, hot cider and some popcorn. 
My, my plan was this. The, the neighborhood children come. I, I meet the parents here, send the kids up there, and then they come back. And in that minute, try to have a strategic conversation with some of my neighbors. I met four neighbors who I didn't even know before. I was able to talk a little bit about what I do here at Rockford Christian High School. Talk with one and another conversation came up about um, homeschooling. And that some families sort of thinking about it, but I said, you know, we do that. If you want to talk to us, come by and talk to us. But just an opportunity. Had one neighbor come by and say, we are the nicest neighbors. Not, not us. They were talking to themselves. Says, we're the nicest neighbors in the neighborhood. I was like, oh, good. You know? <laughs> good. And that's, that's good, you know? And, and I think that if they then drive by my house, they'll remember that. There was one guy who came by and said, oh, this is different. You know, as so he holds his beer in his hands, oh, this is different. But he lives just right down there. I know he is. And he's got a couple kids. And maybe we'll meet them more. Just trying to be creative, just to talk with them, to form some kind of contact, to be able to be out and touch them. But you know what? Our best evangelistic opportunity we've had over our years in Rockford has been, without question, this is like the easiest evangelistic opportunity there is. Hosting international students. Open your home from Wednesday night through Sunday. And uh, I told you a story last year. We had a couple Chinese students come into our home and um, we met them on Wednesday night and they found out as a pastor from China. I mean, these people didn't know anybody. And, and their eyes get real big and said, oh, you can teach us the Bible then. Had a great opportunity. Went down to visit them. They continue to have more questions. We've given them literature. We've given them research. And, and they're, they're now back in China. But I know they're looking for a church in China. They, they didn't even know about church before they came over here. They didn't even know about Christianity. But we had opportunities to speak with them about many things. Now, some of the students we've had have not been eager. But some of them very eager. Right? Because you can't be in our home without Jesus coming up. And I trust you can't be in your home committed, sold out people to Jesus Christ without having Jesus and Christ come up in your home. It's a great opportunity. Now, I know some of you... That's just difficult to think about having somebody in your house. That's okay. Do something else. And I share these things not because I've been successful. I share them just to provoke you in ways that you can go out and seek others. Maybe I know some of you go to a nursing home and minister nursing home people. That's great. I know I was talking with another family recently. There was a block party. And so they went to the block party. Recently, somebody had uh, inviting people to their house. So they went to their house. Anytime you have an opportunity to go and mix and mingle with unsafe people, have a vision to share the gospel with them. Maybe it won't get there, but have a vision for that. And be involved in that. And you know what? Here, Even I will tell you, if it means missing church or church function for evangelism, miss church and go. Sunday nights, you know, we have flocks on Sunday nights, home Bible study. If you are doing evangelism, if you have some kind of, if you outreach your neighbor, boy, do that and don't come to flocks. But if you're not doing that, maybe come to flocks. Think about that with flocks on Friday night. But if you have an opportunity, pursue things of evangelism. And I pray, I encourage you simply to pray and, and think about ways that you can speak about people. So maybe that's one reason why we haven't seen a lot of conversions here. But you know what? Maybe it's because it's the Lord who converts people. And maybe it's because we live in a time where the, the land is dry and weary. Over the years, I've spoken to many people about spiritual things who are unsaved. And you know what I found? I found the vast majority of people in this world aren't interested in Christ and Christianity. There's not. But it's our responsibility to cast the seed. It's our responsibility to speak with others. It's our responsibility to go out and do what we can. You know, it's really struck me in, uh, of, of how it is that the Lord works. In recent days, I've begun to meet with somebody who is incredibly hungry for spiritual things. And what a refreshing change this has been from the many I've spoken to who are so cold. I gave this man an Ultimate Questions book. You know the Ultimate Questions book we pass out in our, um, our welcome packet? I gave that to him and uh, came to meet him and he said, I read this, I believe that. And I said, wait a minute, it's not, it's not that easy. We need to back off and slow down here a little bit. But I was blown away by how eager he has been to receive those things. And you know what, it's not like I tried anything per se. It's just the Lord has brought him into my 
my lap and I trust that someday he'll come and join us. He's really praying about being baptized. And just pray with me for this man. It's the work of the Lord that's done this. And I, and I really struck, as I talked to this guy, I said, you know what? In my mind, I'm thinking, you know, maybe this is what revival is like. The time of Jonathan Edwards, where scores of people, you know, were at the preaching of the gospel, were coming in. I think it's because God stirs the heart at some time. But we need to be faithful to pass the seed of the Word of God. That if God's working, He's going to encourage the people to come. If we're to be used to the Lord, we need to be faithful in walking through the doors that He provides for us. So, is that your prayer? Is that your heart? Tim Kelly, a missionary to Germany who's preaching tonight at Grace Church of DuPage, says that evangelism is 90% prayer. I believe that. Are you praying for opportunities? Are you praying to want to go? You want to be a missionary? Be a missionary first to Rockford. Bloom where you're planted. The Lord will raise you up and send you out. I tell you, how easy is it for us to forget our purpose for church? I remember hearing a story of a life-saving station that forgot its purpose. Maybe you've heard this before. I've heard it several times. It's a great story. It says, On, on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves. They went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money and effort to support its work. And new boats were bought and new crews were trained. And the little life-saving station grew and some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first place... as a, to be provided as the first refuge of those being saved from the sea. And so they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put furniture in the enlarged building. And now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired a lifeboat crew to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration and there was a, a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick and they messed up the beautiful new clubhouse. The property committee soon met and had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members, however, insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But these were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, which is what they did. And as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. And history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drowned. Kind of gives you an indication where a church can go and we lose a heart for people who are unsaved. How easy is it for us to drift in wanting church to be a nice, comfortable place where we can enjoy one another and live happily ever after? The church has its purpose and its function and its role. And I'll be spending the next few weeks, actually, before we start the new year in our new series through the Bible, about challenging you to understand your role in the church because your interaction here in the church is crucial to everything that God wants it to be. Especially new believers coming in need to understand in fellowship how different the church is than life outside. It's important here in the church to be taught and trained. It's important for us to, to love Christ and 
know how to serve one another. It's important, that even as we start our service this morning, to stimulate others to love and good deeds. And so I'm not saying forsake the church here, because that's important. But it's not about us. It's about a world of lost people who don't know Christ and are headed for a Christless eternity where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The purpose in what we do is create a community of believers to be strengthened in our faith, to go out and speak it forth to a lost world who's dying in their sin. <laughs> in fact, my agenda is this. I stand before you Sundays. I want to so stimulate your hearts. I want to so stimulate your minds. I want to so stimulate you into the truth about Christ that you go forth from this place in your spheres of influence talking about the gospel of Christ because it's so stirred in your heart that it's got to get out. Right? The leper is a great story for me in First, Second Kings 7. Right? Today's a good news, but we're keeping silent. We need to speak forth. What we're doing is not right. That's what we need to be as a church. We need not to forget what our purpose is. We need to be at a life-saving station that continues to be a life-saving station. And it all starts with all of us going to speak with those who are unsaved. Well, the great assurance we have is that we won't be unsuccessful. Look finally and briefly the last half of verse 20. The assurance. Jesus says this, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus knows how difficult the task this is. For me, evangelism continues to be hard. It has never been an easy thing for me to try to bring up spiritual things to non-spiritual people. It's always difficult. And I think Jesus knows how difficult this task is. Jesus knows how impossible this task is. And without His aid and without His help, we'd all flounder and we'd all fail. But He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. And the good news is this, that the Jesus that walked with the disciples... In Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 15, 20, is the same Jesus that is with us today. Promising that all authority has been given to Him. Promising He's not going to leave us or forsake us. He's going to be with us always, even to the end of the age. You know what? And it's been 2,000 years He's continued to be with His church. He's going to continue to be with the church until the end of the age, until all things is consummated. So, trust in that and rest upon this. You think about, boy, praying through as a family or as an individual. Boy, how can I maybe reach out more? You know, how can I really present Christ to people? Say, you know what, God? It's hard. And pray and say, I need your help. And I know that you're with me. Help me in this process. And may we be a life-saving station that keeps its focus and its purpose of what we want to do. Making disciples, right? By going, seeing people converted, baptizing, and also teaching Teaching people to obey Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for the years we've been in Matthew and the joy that has been for me, the benefit it's been to my soul to learn much of this book. I pray that it would have been good to us. I pray that we would continue to read and reflect upon the things that we have learned. And God, particularly I pray that as it all comes to a head right here, so stir our hearts, God, to be those to, who would long to see Your Word spread. And I pray, Lord, for our areas of influence. I pray that each of us even might gather together and really pray specifically for perhaps people in our neighborhoods or people at work who are lost and apart from You. May we show the love of Christ to them. May the message we speak come as a message of compassion and care and concern and interest. And may You do Your work, O oh Lord, to pour out Your Spirit to open eyes and to open minds to see the glories of the Gospel of Christ. How difficult it is, Lord. I confess and I know of living in a, in a society where very few are interested in repenting of their sins and following You. So I pray, Lord, that You would encourage us as You've encouraged me in recent days with this man I've begun to meet with. Just, God, show us how evangelism is Your work. God, and grant us, by Your grace, people who would come to faith. We'd see them baptized and come to see and be trained as disciples who would speak forth that message. And I do pray, God, for Nepal. I pray that You would allow us to, to be an impact there, to help the believers, to facilitate them. 
And I think of how different we have all the worldly goods and they have very little. And we can help them in major ways. We have been educated so much in the Scriptures that many of us here know far more than even the pastors over there. God, give us a heart to be able to train them and teach them even as we have trained and taught people here. God, because the training of the people here far exceeds even what they have received over there. So, Lord, may You reduplicate what we do here over there. And God, may we have a heart, especially for the Hindu in the mountains who has no clue about You, has seen You in Your creation, but has rejected You. May hear the message of Christ and come to faith and believe. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.